This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 24. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, the stunning consequences of setting short notice depositions. What's a short notice deposition? It's a deposition scheduled to take place 13 days or less from the date it's noticed. And that's from Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 32A5A. Now, it's important to understand the rule and its consequences, whether you're the party setting the short notice deposition or the party defending it. In a nutshell, the party setting a short notice deposition runs the risk of losing the right to use the deposition for any purpose in the litigation if the recipient of the short notice takes certain steps. But if the requirements of that rule are met, the prohibition is absolute for any purpose. It cannot be used by the party that noticed the deposition on short notice as defined by the rule. Now, as you know, we've begun referencing cases by name in the episodes, but putting the full citation with parentheticals in the show notes. For this episode, there are about 40 cases in the notes representing, for the most part, all of the nuances to this rule. So you'll find that very helpful as a resource when the issue comes up in your cases. All right, so Rule 32 is titled Using Depositions in Court Proceedings. The focus of this episode is subsection A5A of the rule, and it reads as follows. Limitations on use. Subsection, deposition taken on short notice. And it reads, a deposition must not be used against a party who, having received less than 14 days notice of the deposition, promptly moved for a protective order under Rule 26C1B, requesting that it not be taken or be taken at a different time or place, and this motion was still pending when the deposition was taken. So the rule effectively defines short notice as less than 14 days notice of the deposition, and under the mandatory language of the rule, the deposition cannot be used against a party that has promptly moved for a protective order, specifically asking that it not be taken or taken at a different time or place, and where the motion was still pending when the deposition is taken. As we'll talk about in unpacking the provisions of this rule, the language must not be used against a party has been universally interpreted by federal judges to mean there is no discretion. It cannot be used against the receiving party in the case. It can't be used at trial. It can't be used in support or opposition to summary judgment. It cannot be used in other motion proceedings. It cannot be used, period, by the party that set the short notice deposition. So when is this usually an issue? Well, as you can imagine, short notice depositions often get set when you're in the last week or two of the discovery period and your adversary is panicking, or when the adversary is panicking because a witness is near death or about to leave the country, or the opponent discovers that the witness won't be available at the time of trial, at least as defined by rule. So in these situations, you'll find that your adversary is going to try to cram through a deposition at the very last minute. As long as you promptly file a motion for a protective order and ask for the relief set out in the rule, and as long as the court has not yet ruled on the motion at the time the deposition proceeds, the noticing party cannot use that deposition against you. The rule imposes an absolute bar to the use of that deposition for any purpose in the case by the adversary. All right, so let's talk about the history of the rule. And I'm sure that you've run into all kinds of situations where lawyers have noticed depositions on what can functionally be described as short notice. It might be a few days, it might be a week, maybe 10 days, maybe a little bit more. 
in very general terms, what's considered an appropriate time between the noticing of a deposition and the date of a deposition itself can depend from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, judge to judge, and situation to situation. And I'm sure, as you also know, some lawyers will debate you until the sun goes down about what's fair or reasonable notice under the rules. Now, in the book, I talk about what most jurisdictions consider to be reasonable notice to other parties when setting depositions, and it's generally two weeks or more. Less than that, and judges start to get a little cranky. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that two weeks is sufficient notice in all or even most situations. I'm only saying that it's at the 14-day mark where the cases seem to draw the brightest line on what's reasonable and what's unreasonable notice when setting depositions. All right, as a caveat, and as I've said many times, this podcast is premised chiefly on the federal rules because those rules are uniform across the country and because the majority of state jurisdictions uh, precisely or substantially track the language of the federal rules. Even so, you always want to check your local rules, both in federal court and in state court, to see if your jurisdiction has established a presumptive number of days as constituting reasonable notice for setting depositions. Anyway, the drafters of the federal rules decided to take this problem head-on by suggesting in Rule 32 that setting a deposition with 13 or fewer days notice is officially considered short notice. So it's kind of a warning flag that you're starting to swim toward treacherous waters when you're scheduling depositions within this kind of time frame. Now, to be clear, the rule doesn't flatly forbid short notice depositions, and it doesn't forbid judges from allowing short notice depositions. What it does is establish a baseline for lawyers to ponder, and it creates some pretty severe consequences for those who opt to set a short notice deposition. If you do, and if your adversary then seeks a protective order, and if the judge hasn't ruled on that motion by the time the deposition takes place, you're forbidden from using it for any purpose in the case against the other party or parties who sought the protective orders. And because you don't know when you set a short notice deposition whether the other parties are going to seek a protective order, and because you don't know and can't know whether the judge is going to rule quickly or take his or her time, you're running the very serious risk of losing the right to use that deposition. Because of that uncertainty, which the drafters of the rule surely appreciated, many lawyers will simply not set depositions on short notice as the rule defines it. All right, now to see what this was all about originally, as we were doing our research for this episode, we dug into the Federal Judicial Archives and were able to dredge up the advisory committee meeting minutes that show the actual conversations and comments by the members of the advisory committee about this rule. If you've never taken a look at the meeting minutes from these advisory committee meetings, which take place on a regular basis every year, it's worth a look sometime. It's pretty fascinating stuff. You'll see the actual discussions and points being made by some real heavy hitter legal minds going back to the 1930s. I'm definitely not a policy nerd, but it was unbelievably interesting to see so many legal luminaries debating the adoption of the rules, talking about the different options, talking about why the rule should say one thing and not another. You'll really start to appreciate the unbelievable effort, thought, and creativity that goes into the creation or amendment of a federal rule. Just as an example, uh, as you know, you can take a corporate representative deposition under Rule 30b-6, and when you do that, you've got to list the topics that you want to inquire about. As we were researching for this episode, we ran across some very early committee notes 
on that rule where there was a discussion that lawyers ought to be required to provide a list of topics to be covered not just in 30b6 depositions, but in every deposition taken, which was pretty surprising. Uh, that idea was ultimately rejected by the committee at the time, but it was still interesting to see that the idea had surfaced of requiring lawyers who take depositions to tell opponents in every case what they were going to be asking questions about. So that's just an example. The committee meeting notes contain all kinds of what seemed like experimental ideas to be included in the rules. All right, back to the topic of providing proper notice. The advisory committee notes for this short notice provision show that committee members originally spoke of requiring at least seven days notice of a deposition. And that idea had come up in a letter from an organization called the American College of Trial Lawyers, which had suggested that the committee adopt seven days as the default period for reasonable notice. Uh, that same organization had also asked the committee to include language in the rule that would allow a deponent uh, to choose not to appear if they had received less than seven days, and there had been no ruling at the time of the deposition on objections to the notice. The notes uh, also show that some committee members alternatively proposed that the rule simply provide for reasonable notice without actually specifying a time period. There was also information in the notes indicating that at least two states, California and North Carolina, had adopted 10 days as a presumptively reasonable period of time in which to set depositions. So with all of that information in hand, the advisory committee settled on 11 days and essentially said, if you set a deposition with less than 11 days notice, it was going to be presumptively considered short notice. And here's what you'd find in the committee notes to the original version of the rule. They say, quote, inclusion of this provision is not intended to signify that 11 days notice is the minimum advance notice for all depositions or that greater than 10 days should be necessarily deemed sufficient in all situations. So depending on the circumstances, you might get by with noticing for a shorter period of time. In some cases, more than 11 days is going to be necessary. That makes sense. The message from the rule was, from the committee, we're setting a standard, but there may be exceptions. Uh, now this rule, 32A5A, was amended in 2009, and the uh, committee extended the presumptive minimum notice period from 11 days to 14. And that's where the rules stand right now. 14 days, generically, is presumptively enough to avoid the short notice label and the consequences uh, that flow from that. So. December 1, 2009 is when the 14-day presumptive reasonable notice period took effect. Again, it's essentially a warning shot to lawyers that set depositions on short notice. You set a deposition with less than 14 days notice, and there's a pending motion for protective order at the time of the deposition, you can't use the deposition. I think the drafters were pretty clever in establishing a presumptive minimum period for noticing depositions. This rule in particular incentivizes trial lawyers to be reasonable in setting up depositions. And in that respect, I think it keeps a lot of scheduling disputes out of the court system. And it does so by imposing a very heavy price, a kind of sword of Damocles, because uncertainty and danger lie ahead for those who short notice. So that's the rule, straightforward enough. Let's talk now about some practice tips, some observations, and some of the lessons from the nearly 100 decisions that we reviewed for our research on this episode. Now, we boiled that down to 39 or 40 in the show notes because a lot of those cases were duplicative. 
but the cases in the show notes will give you a very deep research pool to work with if you need to confront this issue. Those cases are from all over the country, and they really cover the waterfront in terms of the particular issue addressed in the context of this rule. So I don't think we missed any of the key cases. All right, before we wrap up, let's do a little Q&A to cover some additional basic practice pointers. First question, do you have to file a motion for protective order, or are there some circumstances where the mere setting of a short notice deposition will forbid the use of the resulting deposition transcript elsewhere in the case? And the answer is absolutely. If you don't file the motion for protective order, then the short notice deposition proceeds and there's no basis to seek exclusion. So short notice by itself does not preclude use of the deposition. That's the lesson of the Sullivan and Gao cases. Those are both in the show notes where the parties uh, seeking exclusion of the deposition transcript did not file a motion for protective order. Court said, well, then the rule doesn't apply to you. And of course, as I've mentioned, a court could deny your pending motion for protective order and allow this so-called short notice deposition. That's the lesson from the Meizu case. In other words, short notice depositions are not forbidden. For the prohibition against usage of the transcript to kick in, you must file a motion for protective order before the deposition, and there must not have been a ruling from the court by the time the deposition takes place. Second question. Well, what if the court denies your motion for protective order? Let's say it's a magistrate judge in federal court. Magistrate judge denies the motion, and then you immediately seek reconsideration from the district judge, or you file some new reapplication for protective order. Does that count? The answer is no. If the pending motion, the original motion was denied, and what's pending now is essentially a motion for reconsideration, courts have consistently said you had your shot at exclusion and you're no longer eligible uh, to have the transcript barred from use later in the case. All right, next question. Well, the rule says that uh, the party who wants to exclude the deposition must promptly apply for a protective order. And the question is, what's promptly? Because that's all the rule says. It just says you've got to make prompt application. So in theory, if you're the non-noticing party and you don't file the motion for protective order promptly, your delay might provide a toehold for the noticing party to argue that the deposition ought to be allowed. The question ultimately as to what a court considers to be prompt filing, I suspect, is going to be situational. There are no cases that define what's considered prompt, and we didn't see any cases that actually outline what kind of standard might be applied to consider whether a motion was filed promptly. I suppose the courts might ask, well, exactly how much time passed between when the deposition was noticed and the deposition itself, and when was the motion for protective order filed in that time frame? Could it have been filed earlier than it was. On the other hand, I'd tell you that the issue of whether a motion for protective order was filed promptly did not come up in any of the 90 or 100 cases uh, that we ran across. That was a little surprising. I would have expected some fairly robust argument by lawyers facing complete exclusion of their deposition that motions weren't promptly filed. It's at least an argument that could be made and it's something that the rule gives uh, a basis for. So I was kind of surprised that none of the lawyers in these cases seem to make that kind of argument. At least it wasn't reported in the decisions. Now, I do think there is perhaps one case in the 30 or 40 that we included in our show notes where there was a at least a fleeting reference to whether a motion had been filed promptly. 
But again, no real discussion of any substance and certainly not a single case in the group where there's a finding or even a hint of a finding that a motion wasn't promptly filed. On the other hand, I suppose, since a short notice deposition under the rule is anything between zero and 13 days, maybe the thinking is that the non-noticing party isn't going to have a lot of time to file the motion anyway. So maybe the reflection of many lawyers that are opposing exclusion of the deposition figure this is a lost cause because they didn't provide much time in the first place. So maybe they're not in the ideal situation to complain about timing. But in most cases, I imagine the motion for protective order will be filed within a day or two of the deposition. And we haven't found any cases that say that that's not prompt. In one case that we did include in the show notes, Stevens versus Steve, S-T-I-E-V-E, where a judge barred use of a deposition, the plaintiff in that case filed his motion for protective order just two hours before the deposition was scheduled. In that case, the defendant noticed a prisoner's deposition on July 30 to take place on August 2. Prisoner gets notice of the deposition on July 31, just two days before his deposition. And then on August 2, just a few hours before the deposition was to start, the inmate hands his motion for protective order and supporting papers, such as they were, to prison authorities to be mailed to the court. Inmate says, well, my motion should be deemed filed as of noon on the day of depositions under the mailbox rule. So in any event, the inmate files two hours before the deposition, and that filing again consisted of simply handing papers to prison officials, not even the court. Judge says, makes sense to me that the papers were deemed filed when handed to prison officials. Parties didn't actually tell the judge in this Stevens case whether the deposition went forward or not, but the judge said, if it did, its use is barred by the defendant. So I suspect that in your cases, if you file your motion for protective order, even a day or two before the deposition, you'll still have a rock solid argument that you filed promptly. After all, you're not expected under this rule to drop everything and immediately file the motion within hours after you receive the notice. That would shift at least a significant part of the burden caused by short notice depositions to you. Next question. Well, is there at least something that the transcript can be used for if this rule applies to a given deposition? And the answer is no. The rule imposed an absolute bar. In fact, one court, the King Court, uh, said this is the only rule that affirmatively requires complete exclusion of a short notice deposition. So there's no permitted use. You can't use it to support or oppose motions, can't use it at trial. So if you took a so-called trial deposition, which the federal rules don't recognize as something distinct from discovery depositions anyway, because the witness was too far away to be subpoenaed, you can't use it. That's the Hannah case. Witness dying, need to perpetuate testimony? Nope. That's the automated transactions case. That was an argument made by the plaintiff corporation for taking a deposition in that case on short notice. And the defendant in that case actually cited to Federal Rule 27, which deals with the perpetuation of testimony, but not in the way that the plaintiff in that case cited it. Rule 27 requires the filing of an independent action, typically to perpetuate testimony through a deposition before a lawsuit has been filed. Rule 27 does not apply for the purposes of perpetuating testimony in an existing action that's already underway. So the judge in the automated transactions case said, nope, can't use the deposition in this lawsuit. Next question. Well, what if I'm working with an opposing lawyer and we agree on a date 
some point into the future, not a short notice deposition, but we agree on a date and the lawyer doesn't actually serve the notice until something less than 13 days before the actual start of the deposition. Court says, no, that's probably not what this rule intended. That's the King case. So for example, uh, if it's just a matter of where a lawyer is slow and getting the notice out doesn't apply. Let's suppose you're talking with your opposing number on January 3 and the lawyer says they're going to notice your client for January 28, but doesn't get the notice out until a few days before. Courts have said probably no exclusion in those circumstances because the rule is intended to apply against true short notice depositions and not simply agreed noticed depositions coupled with some inadvertent or sloppy practice in actually issuing the notice. All right, next question. What if one of my co-defendants in a civil action files a motion for protective order, but I don't because it would simply be duplicative? Well, there are no cases on that, but I think you've got to go with the language of the rule and you better either join in or file your own motion because the rule says that the beneficiary of a motion for protective order is the party who files it. If you didn't file it, it's likely that the deposition may well be used against you, but not against the party that filed it. Next question. What about depositions of non-parties? And the answer is the same. Uh, this rule applies to the exclusion of depositions of non-party witnesses as well. So a deposition of a non-party deponent, again, cannot be used against a party who received short notice as defined by the rule. That's the Mitchell case. All right, next question. Where should I start my research if I'm looking for the toughest cases out there where courts have barred use of a deposition? If you're looking for a hardcore application of the rule, I'd suggest you start with the insurance safety consultants case out of the Northern District of Texas. Again, in the show notes, court says we have no discretion to allow the use of the deposition under these circumstances. And in that case, the exclusion of the transcript wiped out most of the basis for the opponent's motion for summary judgment. And I think it was denied in that case because it kind of dropped the bottom out of the movement's case once the deposition was excluded. Also, the King case in the show notes where the court notes that this is the only rule of its kind that affirmatively requires exclusion and provides no exceptions if the conditions are met. Also, check out the automated transactions case if you're looking for, again, uh, pretty hardcore language in the court decision. There, the plaintiff corporation took the deposition on short notice of the witness, and I mentioned this earlier, who was in declining health. Judge granted the protective order and barred use of the deposition. And in that automated transactions case, uh, the judge quoted some of the tough language that appears in a number of cases, which says that exclusion of the deposition is mandatory and that the judge has no discretion. That discretion argument, in fact, was one of the arguments made by the plaintiff corporation in the automated transactions case. In other words, the plaintiff says, look, judge, courts always have the power to regulate discovery and it's always subjected to the court's discretion. Judge said, under the language of this rule, I have no power to allow you to use the deposition. All right, next question. Does attending the deposition waive my right to seek exclusion on behalf of my client? The answer very clearly is no. You can attend the deposition without waiving your right. So you get a chance to see how the deposition unfolds if you choose to do that without losing the opportunity to seek exclusion. Another question, do we have any tips when you need to research this issue? Uh, one in particular, when you are researching uh, Rule 32A5A, it's critical to look at the date that the opinion was issued. First, if the dispute and ruling took place before December 1, 2009, 
then you're looking at cases when the rule deemed 11 days to be reasonable notice. December 1, 2009 is when the rule changed and bumped a presumptive reasonable notice to 14 days. So if your opposing lawyer's name is Wiley E. Coyote, uh, he or she may try to bluff you by citing cases from old versions of the rule with 11 days if they've given between 11 and 13 days notice. So check the date of the opinion and the date of the dispute. Second, be sure to check the date of the court's order in relation to the date that the notice was issued in that case and when the deposition took place in that case. In other words, you might be looking at a ruling where the judge acted immediately on a motion for protective order, which means you'll likely have a different outcome. It may mean that the deposition can go forward. It may mean that the transcript can be used and may mean that it's no longer, the situation is no longer within the purview of 32A5A. That's the Gabriel case out of the district court in Vermont. The deposition in Gabriel was noticed July 1 for July 14, which is 13 days. But the judge ruled on July 10. So it's not a 32A5A exclusion issue because the motion was ruled on. Then it just came down to the basic issue, whether notice was reasonable, and the court said it was on those facts. Remember again, 32A5A creates a barrier to use of the deposition if it's been noticed in less than 14 days, but it's not a bright line statement that 14 is required in all situations and the comments to the rule make that clear. Next question, what if the original notice is amended to move the depositions back a few days, now making the depositions 14 or more days from original notice? The answer is that when the original notice is amended, it's the date from the new amended notice that you now use to calculate from, not the original one. So suppose an adversary notices the deposition of Joe Smith on January 1 for a January 14 deposition, which is short notice at 13 days. Then the adversary amends the notice on January 10, nine days after the initial notice, and moves the date of Mr. Smith's deposition back one day to January 15. So now Mr. Smith's deposition unquestionably will take place a full 14 days after that initial notice was served. You object, the defendant says, judge, well, look, we first noticed Mr. Smith on January 1, and now with the amendment, it will have been 14 full days. We're good. We put you on notice on January 1 and amended for January 15, so we're good to go. That's not how it works. You count the number of days from the date of the current operative notice. In the hypothetical, the initial notice on January 1 when it was issued was a short notice deposition, period. With the amendment, you now have a new notice, which is also a short notice, period, because it was served in the hypothetical on January 10 for January 15. So count the number of days from the notice in play at the moment, not from some prior version of the notice. That's the L.L. Bean case. And the reasoning behind this, courts say, is that you shouldn't have to begin preparing for a short notice deposition on the assumption that the noticing party might later amend the notice to add more days and make it all better. A short notice deposition has an embedded flaw all on its own, and there is no obligation to presume that your opponent will make it right. Each notice stands on its own. This kind of situation popped up in the Dickinson Frozen Foods case. Uh, there, the plaintiff noticed a 30B6 witness on July 29 to take place on August 12. That's 14 days. So not at that point a 32A5A short notice problem. 
Still very little notice on a practical level for a 30B6 deposition. So on August 6, the plaintiff's counsel says, well, we're not going to proceed with the 30B6, but we are going to keep August 12 for the depositions of three new fact witnesses. So on August 9, three days after this new notice and three days before the deposition, the defendant moves for protective order. Depositions go forward. The motion for protective order remained pending. Court says, I'm going to grant the protective order. Plaintiff cannot use the depositions in that case. So even though the defendant had held and reserved the original date, which wasn't short notice at the time, the fact that the defendant amended in less than 13 days made it short notice and caused the court to rule that the deposition could not be used. There's some great language in the Dickinson case, and let me quote some of it. Starting with this, Rule 32A5A is the only provision of the federal rules that affirmatively requires exclusion of a deposition taken on short notice. Ordinarily, a party does not obtain protection merely by filing a motion for protective order under Rule 26C. Instead, any protection is dependent on the court's eventual ruling. However, it appears that Rule 32A5A provides protection without regard to whether the filed motion for protective order is eventually granted. And that's absolutely correct. The language is mandatory. The bar is absolute. Court goes on to say exactly that. As mentioned, the language of Rule 32A5A does not provide room for discretion. As such, several courts have held the prohibition on testimony obtained from a deposition on short notice is mandatory. Court goes on to say, the word must means that the requirement is mandatory and not discretionary. And the Dickinson Court uh, quoted from another case for the proposition that federal courts have no more discretion to disregard a rule's mandate than they do to disregard constitutional or statutory provisions. So there you have it on Dickinson. Next question. Can I refuse to appear for a short notice deposition if I seek a motion for protective order? Well, under the comments to the rule, it appears you can. It appears you do have the option to decide whether to appear at the deposition with your deponent or whether to stand tight, file the motion for protective order and decline to attend. Now, keep in mind that the court might well rule on the motion before the scheduled start of the deposition, so you at least need to be in a position where you can attend if the court declines your motion. And of course, if you don't attend, the consequence is the deposition may be reset anyway, unless the discovery deadline has run. So maybe you want to uh, appear at the deposition to minimize the risk of doing it down the road. Maybe your deponent has some bombshells to drop, or maybe you just want to go to the deposition see how it goes, and then make a decision whether you want to either stand your ground and seek the exclusion of the deposition or allow the noticing party to use it depending on how it came out. Next question. In all this talk about what's reasonable notice, what's short notice, what is reasonable notice for a deposition? Well, in some of these cases, judges held that 14 days, 18 days, 21 days or more were just fine. In some cases, judges held that less than 14 days was reasonable. That's the Flores case. So it's just going to depend on the circumstances. When you're talking about what's short notice, what's reasonable notice in general, there are some basic obvious questions to ask. Will the witness require or the deponent require substantial preparation before the deposition? That tends toward longer notice. Is the person a critical witness in the case? Is the witness someone whose schedule or whose life would be severely disrupted from a short notice deposition? 
Is it a 30B6 deposition, which obviously requires additional significant preparation as compared to most? Will the scheduled notice of the deposition disrupt the schedule of lawyers? Did the noticing lawyer wait until the last minute? Will 11th hour depositions cause problems or are they likely to trigger motions to delay the case? And is the noticing party trying to inject new issues into the case at the last minute? So these are just some of the factors that bear on the question as to whether the notice given is reasonable or not. All right, next question. Do I still have to confer with the noticing party before I file my motion for protective order? And the answer is yes. If your jurisdiction or if the rules governing your proceeding require you to confer before you file a discovery-related motion with the court, Rule 32A5A does not relieve you of that obligation. That's the Bates case. Uh, so don't skip that thinking that the rule gives you safe harbor to pass on otherwise mandatory conferral obligations. It certainly does not. Next question. When I file my motion for protective order, do I have to label it as an emergency? Am I expected to call the court and give them a heads up that I filed a time sensitive motion? And the answer is no. The rule imposes no requirement that you label it an emergency, only that you file it promptly. That's the Liberty Mutual and the automated transactions decisions. In fact, uh, the court in the automated transactions case made a point of dryly noting that the defendant, quote, did not ask that the briefing schedule be expedited so as to resolve the motion prior to the deposition, close quote. Even so, the court there granted the motion for protective order without pausing and barred the use of the deposition in the case. So it's clear that the mere filing of your motion for protective order before the deposition is sufficient to trigger the penalty provisions of the rule as long as the motion hasn't been ruled on at the time of the deposition. I suppose you and many folks might say, well, that's not fair. The, the movement ought to alert the court to the pendency of the motion. And in many situations, it makes sense if you have an urgent situation and need court relief. But under this rule, the burden is on the noticing party to do it right and to give proper notice. The drafters obviously could have included language assigning responsibility to the non-noticing party, to the party filing the motion for protective order, to do all it can to prevent the short notice deposition. Or the drafters could have placed some burden on the court to swiftly rule. Alas, no such obligation on either the non-noticing party or the court. Instead, the rule's fundamental operating principle is that a noticing party is solely responsible for noticing and solely responsible for the consequences of getting it wrong. And those consequences are severe. So the recipient of a short notice deposition clearly isn't required to do all it can to rectify the situation. It need only file the motion before the deposition begins. Next question. So should I go or should I stand pat and refuse to attend? Well, hard to say. It's just going to depend on the facts in your situation. But in a way, the rule gives you a free bite at the apple, so to speak, if you are the party who decides to produce the deponent in response to a short notice deposition and let the deposition proceed. If the deposition goes well for you, I suppose you have the right to tell the noticing party that they can use the deposition. In other words, you can waive that penalty clause. It's obviously not jurisdictional. And if the deposition goes very badly, well, it's not going to be used for anything anyway at any time in the case as long as the court didn't rule on the motion before the deposition began. So there's really a tactical and strategic decision to be made if you're on the receiving end of a short notice deposition. 
Do you file a motion and not appear, which the comments to the rules suggest you can do? Or do you file the motion and show up and see what happens? The rule is clear, though, that you don't waive the penalty provisions by showing up, and the bar against use, if the court hasn't ruled on it, is absolute. All right, next question. Well, are there any cases anywhere that have held that a short notice deposition can be used in court proceedings, even if a timely motion for protective order was filed and wasn't ruled on? And the answer I must tell you is yes, there is exactly one case where a court said, actually, the deposition transcript can be used, even though we didn't rule on the pending motion for protective order, and even though it was clearly a short notice deposition. It's an outlier decision. The ruling did not cite any authority, didn't analyze the rule, didn't analyze the unquestionable one-sided body of law that bars their use. So this is the Johnson versus Ivy case out of the Middle District of Georgia in 2016. The magistrate judge in that case said that under Rule 56, that's the summary judgment rule in federal court, the deposition transcript could be used against the deponent who was deposed on short notice, and the judge recommended summary judgment be granted against the deponent in part based on that deposition transcript. This decision is clearly wrong. It has not been followed on that point or on any other point in the opinion since it was issued. It didn't cite any authority didn't discuss any, and didn't distinguish the cases. The rule clearly imposes an absolute bar on the use of the transcript. There isn't an exception or a workaround. So it's hard to say how the magistrate in that case, or the district judge, which uh, granted summary judgment ultimately, how they came to this decision. There's just no telling. It's clearly not correct. Maybe this one slipped out the back door because the party against whom the deposition was used was an inmate, not somebody likely to appeal or to put together even a cogent argument. But the inmate did raise it, and it was rejected by the judge. So if you're looking for a toehold, and I'm supposing it's going to be a pinky because it's a very small toehold, you've got the Johnson versus Ivy case for the proposition that a short notice deposition can be used in support of summary judgment. I wouldn't do it. Your judge is going to know it's an outlier and is going to know that the decision is simply wrong and you're not going to look good when somebody points that out. You'll see some other loose language in other decisions that we've included in the show notes that don't quite accurately capture the rule. For example, uh, one case, the Bates case, specifically says that the rule bars the use of the deposition at trial. Well, that's technically correct, but it's not quite so narrow. You can't use the deposition at all in the case, period. It's not just limited to trial. All right, let me make a few more general observations, and then we can wrap up. First, it seems to me that in most circumstances, this issue of short notice can be avoided with just a little bit of planning on our part as litigators. A number of these cases arise in the context of last-minute depositions just before the discovery deadline closed. That's the Lays case, L-E-Y-S, the Davis case, the Ocanis case, O-C-A-N-A-S, among others. In some of those cases, the depositions were set on the very last day of discovery, and some of them during the last four or five days of discovery. Most of the time, lawyers that are doing that, if they're dealing with an adversary that knows about the exclusion under 32A5A, are just spinning their wheels. And frankly, even if a lawyer timely notices a deposition, 
to take place on the last day of discovery, it's still likely to trigger problems. Let's suppose you give 20 days notice for a deposition with the 20th day being the last day of the discovery period. Some judges in my experience might say, if you draw objections because of inconvenience, for example, that they're just not going to let you take the deposition on the last day of the discovery period, even if it's technically timely. Federal judges in particular generally don't want to see parties waiting until the last possible moment to conduct discovery that might open additional issues. So the closer you get to the actual discovery deadline, even if you're still within the discovery period approved by the judge, the less likely, in my experience, your judge is going to view favorably your scheduling if it draws an objection. Same with motions to compel, as you may know. While your scheduling order might say that you cannot file a motion to compel after discovery closes, many judges will still have a problem with it if you file your motion in the last week or so of the approved discovery period. So uh, just not a good idea to wait until the last minute. That's the Kellogg Company case where a district judge barred last minute depositions as simply being unfair, even though they were technically timely. Next question. What to do if you're in a spot, you're in a jam, and you need to take a deposition that's going to be short notice, and you're well mindful of 32A5A's sharp teeth? Well, I'd say if you can only take it on short notice, I suppose I'd say go ahead and set it. You're probably better off hearing the testimony even if you can't use the resulting transcript. 32A5A obviously doesn't relieve your deponent of the obligation to tell the truth. So even if you can't use the transcript, you can probably still fashion a decent trial examination around it. Remember, the rule doesn't bar you from using information that you learn in some other manner. You just can't use the transcript. And the deponent will be mindful, obviously, that your inability to use the transcript doesn't mean that the deponent can now testify at odds at trial as to what was previously said. You can't use the transcript in the current action but a deponent who decides to be a little shifty in their sworn testimony once they realize you can't use their deposition testimony still could face criminal perjury problems if their subsequent testimony flatly contradicts what they said in their deposition. And you may still be able to persuade the court to let you depose a witness later, uh, perhaps a timely one, under the guise of a trial deposition. We just never know. The federal rules, again, don't recognize trial depositions as a thing separate from a discovery deposition. But Rule 32A5A doesn't bar a court from allowing you to redepose a witness. Don't count on it, but it's still a possibility. Another point is that your opposing number, if you're setting a short notice deposition, may not be aware of the rule, may not file a motion for protective order, might squawk a little bit, but might show up and let the deposition proceed. If they do file a motion for protective order, keep in mind that the court might rule on it before the deposition begins and allow it. The rule only bars the use of the deposition transcript if the motion remains pending, and a judge can obviously allow a short notice deposition. That's the Landis case. What else? If the opponent files a motion for protective order and doesn't label it as an emergency or as requiring uh, expedited treatment from the judge, then you ought to file something. Call the judge's chambers and say, hey, this motion was just filed. The deposition starts in two days. Could we please have the motion treated as an emergency for purposes of the ruling. So there's nothing to stop you from seeking emergency consideration of the, of the motion if the moving party fails to do so. All right, last point, uh, and this is sort of worst case scenario. If the party whose uh, witness was deposed on short notice 
offers portions of the deposition into evidence, right? So you're not allowed to use it, but they use portions of it for some reason and uh, read it into evidence, offer it into evidence at trial. Federal Rule of Evidence 106 um, may allow you to use pertinent portions of the transcript for completeness. So if the opposing party, you set the short notice deposition, you're now barred from using it, but the opposing party offers some portion of that deposition into evidence at trial, I think you're still going to be allowed under Federal Rule 106 to offer uh, pertinent other portions of that transcript for completeness. And that's out of the automated transactions case, footnote two, where the judge said under those circumstances and only under those circumstances, the short noticing party can at least allow the jury to hear other portions of the testimony uh, to put into context the piece that was read by the non-noticing party. All right, so that's all we've got for you on this topic. Very, very interesting issue. If you're on the receiving end of a short notice deposition, now you know exactly what you need to do and the tremendous benefit that comes with it. If you need to set a short notice deposition, I suppose I'd say this, avoid it if you can at all costs. It has malpractice written all over it if you take a critical deposition on short notice and it winds up being excluded. On the other hand, keep this in mind. Since the federal rules were first adopted, I think in the 1930s, there have only been about 90 reported decisions on this issue. So if despite your best efforts, you've just got to set a short notice deposition, you might just be able to pull it off. This is not a widely cited rule. And I suspect there are some litigators who simply won't file anything and who may not appreciate that they can take steps to exclude your deposition. All right, thanks again for listening. And be sure to check out the book that this podcast is based on, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide to superior deposition practice, now at 450 pages in its third edition, available on Amazon and just about everywhere else you buy your books.